everybody. Our founding pastor, Stan Mitchell. That was dicey. It could have gone a lot of different ways. <laughs> it's always a risk. The introduction is always a risk. Um, well, thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for putting us in your... Yeah. Um, 20 years. You founded this church when you were 12. No. And no. Most people don't realize... Uh, 18. 18, okay. Yeah. Just, just getting started. Could you, could you just talk a little bit about what it feels like to be in this space with these folks, with their folks online, 20, knowing 20 years? Like, that's a, a big deal. It's an accomplishment. It's a, it's a gift. It's beautiful. What is it like to be... Yeah, I mean, it's obviously gratifying to look and to see something that you poured your heart and life into... And, and to think that it's still not just surviving, but you guys are flourishing. I mean, obviously, look at this. It's, it's wonderful. So it's a wonderful feeling. I remember when we started Grace Point. I mean, this is the buckle of the Bible belt, the stem of the buckle of the Bible belt. I remember some of my friends at Lifeway, actually, had done a lot of research on new churches in the 65 Williamson County corridor. And the shelf life of new churches, they told us at that time, past five years was somewhere between like 10 to 12%, and 10 years and full viability was in the 3 to 5% range. So just on those grounds, not even getting into, you know, kind of the uniqueness of what we were trying to do, it's incredibly gratifying, and I couldn't be more grateful. I've been pastor emeritus for four years and, and, and still maintained that everything I do is an extension of Grace Point. I mean, all of the work that I do, for those that don't know, I just do Grace Point out and amongst the folk, um, there are there are so many people in small towns in Delaware and Nevada and North Dakota that don't have a church like this within hundreds of miles of them. And predominantly, you know, the folk that I work with are Southern Baptist, Church of Christ, Nazarene, Church of the Brethren, Missionary Alliance, just conservative evangelical people whose faith comes not crumbling, but to a point of real intersection around gender sexuality. Most of the time, it's the child of theirs is battling not wanting to live because of what they're learning in Sunday school. And so I just take Grace Point to them. On the weekends, I'm at our churches. Um, Josh has asked me now to start filling in for him sometime when he's gone. So it's incredibly gratifying just to have stayed apart and to extend um, this work. I, I do want to say from the get-go, and Craig, what a wonderful. You just synopsized everything that we tried to do. Couldn't even put to words in the beginning. But I wanted to say we do have one charter member here today, all the way back to May of 2003, when 12 people gathered in the living room and started the dream of all this. And that is the other Stan Mitchell that goes by Stan Mitchell Jr. right back here. Wave, Stan. He... He was five years old, and he reminds me every day. He's an incredible 25-year-old human being, but he reminds me every day of why we did this. Mm. Because I, I grew up amongst wonderful people who thought horrible things about God and ourselves. And the trauma from that, I will forever be getting over. I, I, just, I, I will never be completely over all of that. Stan Jr. grew up in Grace Point in a church with a wide-hearted perspective of Jesus and Christianity. And when I talk about my upbringing and the wounds that are still there and the fears that I have and all of those disturbances of soul that are embedded in me, 
Um, it's lovely to see him with compassion look at me and not be able to identify. Mm. And I'm just thankful we did that. And you can say amen to that, can't you, son? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of that, just hearing what our kids learned just over there a, a yeah. minute ago, that their faith is their own and it doesn't have to be their parents or anybody else's, that it's about question. I mean, that what a gift yeah. to not... We, we say often, our kids here aren't going to deconstruct in the way that so many of us are and have, and, and thank God, because yeah. uh, it's a process. <laughs> uh, let, before we keep going, uh, we're acknowledging folks who have been around for a minute. Um, is anybody else here with us right now that was, has been present for all 20 years? All right. Jeff. Jeff. Good to see you, Jeff. Uh, what about, let's just say 10 years. Anybody been around 10 years? Grace Point. All right. I see those hands. No, this is, this is giving me triggers back in the day. <laughs> when I, remember remember the, no, no, the Mother's Day where it's I like. I was just the, talking about that. It we all, should be giving out flowers. It always got odd. It was like the, it, when it was like the youngest. Well, the Holy Ghost broke out over there. I don't I'm not exactly you, you, sure. You didn't get enough attention, Cassie, when you were up here singing. <laughs> but you remember the whole awkward thing of the youngest mother? That always got a little bit dicey. I mean, <laughs> Northeast Arkansas, so anyway. What, what, what about eight years? Anybody been around eight years? Yeah. Uh, what about five years? That's almost me. I'm so close to five years. Almost me. Oh, it's so good to see all of you, those of you who we haven't seen in a minute, those of you who are all, we're just, oh, it's so beautiful. Stan, so you're, you're sitting here 20 years in. Talk about a little bit about the, the early sort of impulse, because one of my favorite, when I got the job here, you and I went for coffee, uh, and you were just kind of downloading a little bit of Grace Point history, and you talked about how Grace Point was created to be a laboratory, can you just talk about that early impulse? Because uh, we still reference that all the time. Grace Point's a laboratory. It's a place where we're hypothesizing, testing hypotheses, all that sort of thing. Can you talk about that impulse? Yeah. Grace Point started with a very definitive purpose, and it's a, it's a purpose that's borne out, and we played it out, um, but the laboratory aspect is very real because we didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out, and it's turned out in ways like any good laboratory that has surprised us, shocked us, saddened us, but you continue to learn and you keep moving forward. The one thing that I want to say that we did know in the beginning of Grace Point 20 years ago, those that gathered together, and we knew it at different levels, we knew that we were a part of a continually progressing Christian tradition. We knew that Christianity had a long history of being progressive in nature, you know, when we talk about traditional versus progressive Christianity, I, I, I get that, but I do think that that's a little bit misguided because we personally believed in the beginning that the tradition of Christianity is inherently progressive. Yep. Christianity was born it, it, with a progressive bent and slope. And so everything from the Protestant Reformation to the Wesleyan renewal to the Pentecostal revival to the Anabaptist movement, all of these things indicate that Christianity's always progressing. We knew a bunch of evangelicals. It was, it was a group of people from Southern Baptist, Nazarene, Church of Christ, Assembly of God, conservative evangelical backgrounds. We knew that something was afoot, and we knew that we were supposed to be a part of it. 
It was in retrospect, I don't want to bore you with the details, but it was in retrospect, and I think this is important, it was another iteration of a movement that had been in earnest working hard for about the last 200 years, kind of post-enlightenment. The Renaissance, the European Renaissance, the Enlightenment gave us more than a scientific and industrial revolution. It really did give us a religio-spiritual yeah. revolution. Yeah. Because the same microscopes and telescopes and good critical lenses that we, we were using on botany and astronomy and economics, there were a lot of good religious people who said those same critical lenses can apply to our religion and our spirituality. And when... Christians really began in earnest to do that the latter part of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century. It birthed, it birthed some movements pretty immediately. The first really was the Unitarian Universalist movement. Um, it was born out of Christianity. Um, it became pretty immediately, understandably, kind of Jesus allergic because there was so much that it was trying. But the principles of Unitarian Universalism, when you read the big six or seven, it's it's... It's Christianity at its heart. It's Jesus at its heart. Yeah, it may not yeah. be Christianity. Uh, the good Unitarians, those seven principles, those seven principles are the spirituality of Jesus, not the religion about Jesus. Yeah. Big difference. And I think the Unitarians looked and said, you know, well, Christianity hasn't been using this stuff, so somebody <laughs> should. And so Just find they, a line they ripped around. us off. <laughs> that mainline liberalism, Episcopals, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, that movement was born. The Unity Movement, who was very Jesus sentimental. The Religious Science Movement, same principles, very Jesus allergic. Those movements were all attempts to take Jesus seriously without the narrow-minded and misguided angst about the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And the radical exclusivism that arrogantly said, well, we're the only ones, which... Is, is not a religious phenomena. It is a evolutionary phenomenon. It's a part of survival. It's a part of our animalistic instincts to survive, to other people, to turn neighbors into competitors and to turn family into enemies because there's this sense of scarcity. And the same scarcity that we as primates and animals felt about food and air and water we begin to feel about God and the acreage of the afterlife. Mm. And so, so much of Christianity's first 1,800 years, true progressives don't look at Christianity and say, well, we've got it right now and we've been wrong. The real heart of progressive Christianity is, have we read this story of Jesus, have we read this scripture most faithfully today? The arrogant, arrogant patronizing way of acting like everything's been stupid and now we're smart is, is its own form of liberal Phariseeism and fundamentalism. And it may emphasize wideness of mind, but it's not wideness of heart. And, and so uh, there was just a group of us that knew, and you remember this, a lot of you can resonate with this, in the late 80s when the Southern Baptists split and a group of moderates really lost that franchise, some thinkers came out of that camp, the Frank Violas, the Tony Campolos, the Philip Yanceys. And these were people who were speaking more wide-hearted, sensible things about Jesus and the Bible, God, salvation, the afterlife. They were saying them, and they weren't saying something new. This stuff had been talked about for 200 years amongst the mainline Unitarians. 
but they were saying them in evangelical settings. And for us, it didn't matter that these thoughts had been around for 200 years. It was the first for us. That's right. yeah. And that's why you got to be very careful in places like this not to become arrogant in your post-deconstruction. Because I hear a lot of people in our circle say, I'm so tired hearing about deconstruction. Well, lucky you. Because you've had the chance to go through it and get to the other side of it. The reality is deconstruction is not an epoch of time or located in a social location. It's not something that is a religious movement that a group of people went through. It's something that happens in the soul of every human, and every human gets to do that kind of psychological, intellectual, spiritual weaning. And so we have to be compassionate. What an awful thing to get to the other side of your own harrowing journey in that and then to act like, well, it's time to move on. There needs to be a space for people always. The harvest field in the Bible Belt is huge for that group of people. <laughs> right. to use well, we, we were that group, and long story short, Campolo and Yancey, um, they were saying things that just piqued our interest, and then a guy named Brian McLaren came along in the late 90s, and he said things so well in our language yeah. that it didn't off-put us and scare us so horribly that we that we couldn't follow. And McLaren gave rise in the early 2000s to a group of guys like me who said, I, I'm personally going through deconstruction from growing up as a United Pentecostal. I was a little boy that I couldn't even play Little League sports because it was considered a world day amusement. In fourth grade, I had a panic attack at school, at school because my hair was touching my ears and I was afraid the rapture might take place. And with long hair, I wouldn't make it. That kind of trauma, we, we knew what we had gone through, and a group of us who were reading McLaren and Campolo, we said, you know, if this stuff is really going to work, it needs to happen in an ecclesial setting. It needs to happen in the local church. And not very far down the road ourselves, we just decided to start. And Grace Point started, Grace Point literally started with the trappings and the stylisms of an evangelical church so that it would be comfortable for all of us. It started with those kind of sensibilities and trappings. It did not start as a typical evangelical church with a doctrinal statement of 12 points. It literally, our whole point was we are going to be a place for people to be able to fall apart in their spirituality, their faith, Questions and struggle and deconstruction are not going to be counted as heresy or apostasy or backsliding. They're going to be upheld as a normal and natural part of Christian spiritual maturation. We started that, for those that are new, we did that from 2003 to 2011. And we grew from 12 people, Stan Jr. and me and 10 others, we grew to about 2,500 to 3,000 members. We built a 22-acre campus in Franklin on Franklin Road, spent $8 million. We were still evangelical in a lot of ways. <laughs> we built this big thing. But we grew. We had, we had seven, 800, sometimes 1,000 people on Sunday. We were known in the community as the, you know, the progressive, so we weren't. Other evangelicals were scared of us. But it was, it was a growing, thriving community. Sunday morning, we were not Sunday morning-centric, though that's where most people showed up. The real strength of our church was our church was full of book clubs reading Richard Rohr and Brian McLaren and Madeline LaEngle. And it was just a bunch of Baptists and Church of God and Church of Christ sitting around saying, okay, 
I'm not alone in this. I'm not crazy. I, and we did that, and it was great. I, I, honest, honest to God, I'm not kidding you, and I'm not remembering fondly. It's the truth. That first nine years, I don't remember one argument amongst staff, amongst board, amongst congregation. It was halcyonic. It was, it was, it was too good to be true, literally. <laughs> because it was a laboratory, and I'll tell you where the laboratory faced its first contamination or we just realized the experiment did have fissures and flaws. Not failures, but that's part of experimenting. The Marriage Amendment Act came out. Well, let me tell you about Grace Point for the first nine years. We were a deconstruction zone. And when somebody would walk up to me as the lead pastor and say, hey, how does Grace Point feel about substitutionary penal atonement? Or how does Grace, what's Grace Point's position on abortion? I literally would honestly, it's not political shtick. I meant this. It was our zeitgeist. It was our MO. I would say to them, I would say to them, I don't know. You'll have to ask them. Because for us, Grace Point wasn't a 501c3 with a 12-point doctrinal statement that 2,800 people agreed with. It was a place to fall apart at the feet of Jesus and even let go of him if you needed to, and it would be okay. And it was wonderful, and it worked. But when the Marriage Amendment Act came out, honestly, our church faced a crisis of integrity, and I face one a crisis of personal integrity as a pastor. Because as much as I had loved curating that deconstruction zone, as you might imagine, Grace Point was filled, Kenny and Butch, with queer people. And it wasn't because we were fully affirming, it was because we weren't fully condemning. Hmm. And we literally were kind of a Jim Crow segregated South after chattel slavery. Forgive the appropriation, but that's what it felt like. It was like, it was like in the New Testament, the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and she wanted her child healed. And Jesus stated the, the religious worldview of the time. He said, well, I, I can't do anything for you because we don't, give, we don't give bread to the dogs. Jesus was really stating how awful religion had gotten at that point, even the religion he himself was a part of. It's, just, it's not about Judaism or Christianity. It's just what we can do as humans. And the woman looked at Jesus and she said, but my child, my child and I are starving. I don't expect a place at the table, but if you will let us eat the crumbs that fall around your feet, it'll keep my child from starving and I'll swallow my pride to keep my kid alive. And Jesus couldn't take it. He turned around to his disciples and said, that's it. That's actually what we need to do. And if we don't do that, we need to close the whole thing down. And queer people in 2011 at Grace Point were Syrophoenician. They didn't sit at the table with us, but they at least didn't starve. And it was the best deal they could get in the Cool Springs Corridor in Williamson County in the conservative South. And they tolerated it. And they, they brought their thirst and they drank from water fountains with signs over them. But 2011, the water from those water fountains, even at Grace Point, began to taste like poison. And I knew that serving that community, 
I was, I was on the other side of deconstruction. I had constructed a very progressive, wide-hearted, liberal Christian faith that was, that was pleasing and peaceful to me. I was still serving a community that was in all types of different places. But long story short is I knew when Mary and Jody came to me and said, you're our pastor, would you marry us, that I could not say no. So now all of a sudden we had a very practical theological issue that I knew we could not continue genuinely in the place where we were and look at our queer community and say, no, we will not marry you, we will not ordain you, and you can't be elders here. I knew. So when I, when I knew that we were going to have to state ourselves, and I would, I mean, you had to fire me, but I, I've got to marry these people. I've got to ordain them. Well, Grace Point had three groups at that time. This was what the laboratory had created. We had three groups. We had a definitively progressive Christian group who were past all of that, and they were like, well, sure. That, and that was, I, I literally, I, I was, I've always been a hands-on pastor. I went through our 2,800 people on the list. I knew 2,500 of them, and I divided them into three categories. It was one, two, and three. And the one group was definitively, it was like 31 to 35%. And then there was a group in the middle. They were the deconstructing folk that we had built the church for, the nail-biting, angsty people who were still scared to death. They weren't over here, but they weren't back here, and they didn't know what to do, but it was safe for them. And I knew as soon as I said, well, I'm going to perform same-sex marriages, there would be a group of those that it would advance their deconstruction, and there would be a group that would be like, oh, that's too much. And it would scare them. They were still talking about was Adam and Eve literal and that kind of stuff, <laughs> but not, not, you know, not, not gender binaries. So that group was about a third. And then y'all, here's the hard part. This is where the laboratory broke down. A third of our church were conservative, evangelical, Catholic Christians who didn't get what we were doing. And they were there because we were evangelical and style enough. And I knew they were there. And those conservatives they were a third of our congregation, but they were about 75% of our giving because that legalistic <laughs> tithe still does better than liberal generosity. <laughs> and we had a $52,000 a month building payment and a $1.9 million budget. And I was still evangelical in ethos. Not theology, but ethos, and it hit me. Oh, my God, the reason they're here, Rachel, is because I am trying to trick them into saving them. I am building water wells for them, and then I'm going to trick them and convert them over to liberal Christianity. And it wasn't a group of people. It was our best friends. It was... Those three groups were on the same board, in the same choir, in the same Sunday school classes. And the group in the middle was connected to both because they, were, they shared a border with the really conservative folk because they came from them. They shared a border with the progressive folk because they kind of felt like they were going there. But these two groups on the outside loved one another, but they were a million miles apart on some things that they could not either one compromise. And I had to go to the board and say the laboratory has now reached its first fail. We took three years and we finally made the statement in 2015 of, 
of full affirmation and celebration of our queer siblings, we said from the get-go, we, we are not doing something wonderful. We are simply stopping doing something awful. No self-congratulations. We have not invited queer people to the table. We have finally joined them. They've been here all along. That's right. And we did that. We had to sell our campus. We lost a couple of thousand people. I went through a divorce. My family, my life, my emotions were wrecked. But a group of people held onto that laboratory, self-included, and we navigated as best we could and held it, the people are here, and held that laboratory together. And, and you came and a new group was able to take, uh, I'll tell you where we were. We were, weir Paul said, be not weary in well-doing. Well, we were. <laughs> there is a weariness that comes with wrongdoing, but there is a weariness that comes with well-doing. Right. And we were weary, but we held on, Kathy. We held on, Sandy. We held on, and we laid this foundation. And for those that don't know, I think it's important for you to know that's kind of the foundation that's under all of this beauty now. So anyway. And when I first, the first sermon I gave at Grace Point was like fall of 2018. Like I had a memory pop up on Facebook of I'm going to preach at Grace Point. It was like the first time. And there were roughly 40 of them. Uh, and uh, y'all laughing because you remember. <clears throat> Saturday night. <laughs> you weren't laughing then, no. but you can now. Uh, and we would not be here uh, in this space. Grace Point would not be where it is and who it is without those 40 people who just yes. stubbornly, doggedly refused to let it go because they believed that those of you, those of us who weren't here yet, we needed Grace Point. And there were so many other people who aren't here yet now who needed Grace Point. And they had the vision and the courage and the conviction to stick by it. I think we should thank them. Would you join me? Uh, uh, and not just because you gave me a job. That's a wonderful bonus. Um, so uh, I remember first meeting Stan and Grace Point in 2014. Uh, I was pastoring a, a church in rural Kentucky, trying to do the same thing Grace Point was doing. Uh, it was a lot of fun uh, in rural Kentucky. And um, we had reached out. Uh, I stalked Brian McLaren. Stan mentioned Brian McLaren. I stalked Brian and still do somewhat on the internet just to see where he's at. I mean, not in a creepy way, but like if he's near me, I want to go see Brian and hear Brian. And so I reached out, um, and Ron Miller, who uh, was the one who reached back out to me and said, yeah, you can bring your group down Sunday night. And that's when we met for the very first time. And I'd been doing, you know, I'd been doing that work alone in isolation. Uh, and to, to step into Grace Point and to meet another pastor and to meet other people, uh, it was such a gift because I suddenly wasn't alone trying to push this boulder up a hill. There, there was a weariness and well-doing for you in a rural Kentucky town. For sure. I mean, sometime coaches of the year just have to get a fresh place <laughs> and a fresh, and, and so it really was fortuitous that we met through all of that. And, and just the gift that Grace Point gave me and the gift that you gave me at that point in time, just realizing we're not the only church doing this, we're not the only one struggling with this. Um, and I fast forward to, to 2015, uh, I had reached out to you because I, I remember this. I was off the next weekend, which was um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And I'd said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm off that Sunday. I'm going to come down to Grace Point. And you, and you called me, and you were like, well, a thing I did today. 
<laughs> we announced that we're fully affirming today. And so I got to be at Grace Point the week after that. And just the, just the whole experience of it was such a gift. And, and I say all that to just bring it back around to how does, what is the, your experience um, as a founding pastor of a community like this that has become important for other churches and other pastors who are trying, you know, they can look out and see, like, we want to become uh, an affirming community. We want to become a progressive community. We want to do that. Is it possible? What, when you look at Grace Point, what is, that, what is that experience and that feeling like of knowing how much this community matters to people? Yeah, I, I, there's no way I can convey from all of my travels and being out there how important this community is, not just to Nashville and Middle Tennessee. I, I, I want you to know, this, there, no exaggeration, it is an understatement that, let's just focus on evangelicals, the largest part of American, or really Protestantism writ large. There are thousands, no, there are hundreds of thousands and millions of evangelical people just like us who are towing the threshold of this kind of deconstruction, and they're scared and they don't know where to go. Along with that, there are tens of thousands of evangelical pastors who are thinking these thoughts and feeling pangs of conscience and knowing that they have to head this way. Our group, Brian left the pastorate, Tony and Philip never really pastored, Rob tried it and left the pastorate. Our group was the group that said, we've got to do this in a local church setting. It just can't be abstractions in books. We have to, unless Christianity works in a local community, I, I don't know that it's going to go. And so we were trying it, but we really, we really, the, I, the fuel for us was the LGBTQ issue. Because we weren't trying, our primary thing was not to change people's minds about gay people. Our primary thing was to change people's minds about God and Jesus and themselves, about humanity in general and sexuality. When the same gender marriage uh, amendment came along, we were like, okay, this gives us a perfect incarnational issue to flesh all of this out. But it's just one issue, and there's hundreds, but that was ours. Human sexuality is such an incendiary, inflammatory, sensitive issue that our group that tried that were literally cannon fodder. And our churches were cannon fodder. And our friends, those churches are all smaller or now defunct. There's a whole new wave now of post-evangelicals that are not starting the way we did on the LGBTQ issue they got another issue given to them in their lap. We got ours in 2011. They got one in 2016. 2016, the election, MAGA, Donald Trump, nationalism, and that issue gave them the potential to go back to people towing the threshold of deconstruction in their setting and say, is this really who we are? That one is serving more effectively in terms of them being able to get over the hump. It's a little easier, that one. Now, you and I are both saying to all of them, but don't you act like you can go down the road on that and not do the LGBTQ. You cannot be successful enough at that if you don't. And they know that, and they're doing that. But this, I just want to say this. That movement 
it is a part of a larger movement, and it is the ultimate maturation of, of Christianity. If Christianity does not mature beyond being a salvific religion about the afterlife into a wisdom tradition that emphasizes the here and now spirituality of Jesus. If Christianity doesn't move away from fear and angst about hell and south, if Christianity doesn't move away from radical exclusivism, if it doesn't grow up as a religion and be Jesus, it needs to die. Yeah. And yeah. there are times in my travels, I literally, I think I am either helping my religion mature, and Grace Point is either helping our religion mature, or we're doing palliative hospice care, helping something we dearly love go away and live its last breath. People say, are you talking about Christianity dying? It happened to its founder, and things turned out all right. <laughs> Part of the Paschal cycle is death, right. and, and a Christianity that makes queer children not want to live. A Christianity that purports a Jesus that excludes Jews and Muslims and Hindus and humanists, that Christianity either needs to grow up or it needs to go away. Grace Point is a part of a movement that is saying, hopefully, we actually have legitimate hope Christianity can grow up. And I'm telling you, Thousands of pastors are looking toward this community, wanting it to make it, because most pastors from conservative backgrounds who begin deconstruction do that in their mid-30s, their late 40s. It takes a while to get there. The problem is they already have three kids, one in college and a mortgage, and this gets wrapped up in their life, and they're scared to death. Now, do they need courage? Yeah, they need about a fourth as much courage as the queer kids that's been coming to their church have to, f have to muster every morning to go. That's right. That's right. But I'm just telling you, with all that said, Grace Point doesn't need to survive. It needs to thrive because this is the way of Christianity forward. And I mean that with all my heart. So you guys are incredibly important. I tell your story everywhere I go and say, it's possible. It's possible. So. The thing that gives me so much hope and I think about the future of this community, regardless of, of who the lead pastor is, regardless of any of that is, and I've said this to our community time and again, it is that um, throughout our history, even though Grace Point hasn't always been the church it is now, it's not always been as in the, on the progressive scale it is now, it's not always been affirming, but Grace Point has consistently over our history shown that when presented with better information, yeah. we make better choices. Yeah. And uh, because that is in the very DNA of who these folks are. Absolutely. And so when people ask me, well, are, you know, with all the shifts in culture, all that, well, how, are you optimistic about you know, the church. I'm optimistic about this church yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I see in this church so much of the beauty um, that I want to be a part of creating in the world. And it's because y'all, y'all make that happen. Um, it wouldn't, nobody would care what we were saying uh, if there weren't a community of people who were actually embodying it and living it out beautifully in the world. So before we wrap up, I just want to say, and because uh, I think it's important, to, you know, to be said, I have friends who have followed founding pastors in churches. Right? They they took a job and they followed a founding pastor, um, and it has gone for some of them really, really poorly. <laughs> 
really poorly. And I just need to say about our founding pastor that he has been a gift to work alongside, a gift to work with. He has been nothing but supportive. He deeply loves this community and longs for it to thrive. And um, so when I'm with people telling horror stories, I'm like, I got none. Because, uh, and, you know, he's going to preach next week. So he's going to be around. And I'm so grateful. Can we thank Stan? Yeah.